Friends, do you thirst? Do you thirst? Uh, Now you might say, of course I do, but I'm not talking about coffee or getting a drink from the water cooler. We've now hooked it up to the power. It's now got cold water. Use the blue handle. It's magic. I'm not talking about perhaps, you know, getting an ice cold Coke. Just when you need that cold sugar hit with caffeine to boot. Now here's the question that you really, I really need to grapple with now. Do you thirst for something more? Deep beneath the surface, beyond the surface of your taste buds, beyond the hourly need of your stomach, in your heart, deep in your heart, do you thirst? You've heard it said before from this pulpit, as we preach Christ, you've heard this statement before. You might want to call yourself an atheist. A, the Latin non, meaning a non-theist, a non-believer in God. You may call yourself that, and look, you can get away with that. But here's what you've heard before. You cannot call yourself an A-worshipper. No one can call themselves a non-worshipper, because we all worship something. Every human who's ever lived and breathed on this planet has lived for something. There is no such thing as an A-worshipper. None at all. And if you don't believe me, and I've quoted this person before from this pulpit too, listen to David Foster Wallace. Look him up later, but David Foster Wallace was an American academic. He was not a Christian, not a believer at all. He since sadly died. But he was at a university commencement speech speaking to the elite, the uni students, the wow, you know, their bright, ambitious future is before them. And he said this, and I quote, Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as an A-worshipper. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing, be that to worship, be that Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or someone else, or the Four Noble Truths or anything really, is pretty much... Anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if that's where you want to tap into real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. You never feel like you have enough. That's the truth. I'm still quoting, by the way. Worship your body and beauty and your sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. David Foster Wallace was on to something, I think. Not a believer in Jesus Christ at all. But he understood what drives our world is that we are wired for worship. We just worship the wrong things. It's a mismatched chase. And Christian friends, Reforming Church, this is not just for those people out there. This is a temptation for us, in the church even, in here. What do you thirst for in life? What do you set your affections on? It may be you worship success, ambition. I've always wanted to do that career. That's been me. I've always wanted to be that thing, to be known for something. 
It might be you just seek to worship comfort. You want to worship your pleasure. You need your me time. And whilst it's good to have time alone, of course, and I'm an introvert and I appreciate that, do we live for that more than actually serving others and living for that becomes our God? It might be you live for yourself in grander ways. You do this by comparing yourself to others. Everything's an exercise in speck and log for you, a reenactment of the Pharisee and the tax collector, because you've never done what they've done. Or you've, you've never been like that. You're not like that person over there. Oh, yes, of course, you give glib reference to the fact that you've got some sin in your life, but, but you say, but they've, oh, they've, got, they've done horrible things. Well, I wouldn't want to be in that person's shoes. And you end up worshipping yourself because your life becomes one indignant little mess of how you are self-righteous and everyone else is just never good enough. What do you thirst for? Jesus meets a woman who thirsts. And he takes time to go deep to the heart issues in her life. We've got roughly half an hour in a sermon here at church, if you're new with us. Half an hour, Lord's Supper, and then we're going to have church lunch together. Isn't it good to be able to take time to do some heart surgery this morning? Some spiritual heart surgery to get deep into our heart? That's what Jesus is doing right now, and we get this in John 4 unfolding before us as Jesus, by his spirit, is doing heart surgery in us as well. That's what he's doing. He's doing it in me. I had a bit of a week and so I had to finish his sermon last night. It's not ideal, but I can tell you from the start of being in John 4 to the hours I finished last night, Jesus is still doing heart surgery even in me right now. Friends, he's going to do something right now. If we would only listen. Of course, the context is... Jesus is becoming somewhat of a big deal. The Pharisees in John 4 at the start we saw, as Meg read, the Pharisees, when the Bible opened in front of you, you can see this. They hear that Jesus' disciples are baptizing more than John's disciples, and Jesus learns of this. It's kind of a big deal. Well, who's baptizing the most? And it's causing a bit of a stir. So Jesus wants to move direction. So he, he starts to shift from Judea in the south back up to Galilee in the north. Now, here's where it gets interesting in this passage. Look at verse 4. We read this. As Jesus moving up to Galilee in the north, it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you've got a Bible map in the back of your Bibles, or if you've got any idea of kind of that geography, and look it up later, it's interesting. Here's the thing. He didn't. He didn't have to go through Samaria. He didn't have to go through Samaria. He could actually go east and then up. In fact, that was often the favourite route of Jews. Not to go through Samaria. To avoid Samaria at all costs. And so there's a highway going to the east and up. And you just do the bypass and that's easy. Get on Route 67 or whatever it is. And you go up to Galilee. No problems. But John writes in John 4 verse Four, he had to go to Samaria. It's interesting because when John uses that phrase, had to, in the rest of the Gospel of John, it usually shows God's absolute urgent need to do something or Jesus to do something. He had to go there. It should immediately light us up and go, why? 
Why did he have to go to Samaria? Jesus comes to Sychar, there's a well, it's noonday, he's weary. I think this is a beautiful moment in actually understanding Christology, who Jesus Christ is, ology, study of Christ. John's Gospel has said right at the beginning, who is Jesus? He is the Word made flesh. He's God himself, incarnate, in human flesh. Here is God in flesh, the Word in flesh, and now the flesh becomes weary. Here's a wonderful moment of seeing truly that he is truly God and truly human in one moment. The Word made flesh, God himself in flesh, and the flesh is made weary. And as he sits in the middle of the day... At a well, he's tired and he's thirsty. And along comes a woman from Samaria to draw, to draw water. Now we know from the Bible, you can look at lots of stories where women come to wells to draw water. It's in the Old Testament. When do they do that? Usually it's in the morning or evening and it makes sense. Today I think it's going to be a 30 odd degree day. We understand heat in Australia pretty well. You wouldn't go to draw water in the middle of the day. You go when it's cooler. She comes when it's middle of the day hot. Why? There's no one else there. She wants to come when there's no one else there. There's no one else around. Jesus' disciples have gone into the city to buy food. Jesus is after a drink. And the Samaritan woman says to him when he asks for a drink, what really is going on? Culturally, socially, significantly. Verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? And John writes, we see in parentheses there, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is true. There is such a deep divide that we need to understand between Jews and Samaritans that exists even to today, there's such deep divide, uh, Jesus uses parables to make points out of this. Jesus picks the people for the Jews. You know, the Jew might supposed to love their neighbour, but Jesus says, okay, to the person who wants to know who is my neighbour, let me pick a Samaritan for you. See how you go at that one. Let's level that up a bit. Pick people who you really don't like. Pick the unlovelies. Pick the ones you think are your enemies. Pick them and then we'll see how well you go at love. And the Samaritans, when they look at Jews, they also see themselves as different, if not more right. We read 2 Kings 17 for a reason. Big chapter, big scene. The divide between Jew and Samaritan has a history. It's it's, it's a history that goes way back. It's, It's got a history like you and I have a history. We see sin of God's people Israel leads to exile. But then, of course, if you want to conquer a people, you don't just take their land. When you really want to conquer a people, like we learn in the book of Daniel, what do you do? You want to conquer a people? You mix them up so they're not a people anymore. You put other people, other nations with them. That's what they did. They mixed up this nation with other people and mixed them up so much so they had no identity anymore and their their worship is all lost in all sorts of places. They end up in syncretism, idolatry. 
and their thirst for worship, as we saw in 2 Kings 17, sees them try and find satisfaction in life in all sorts of idols, but not in the living God. They will live for anything else. They will make anything else into a God, just like we do. And for Jews, they've got no dealings. Because a Jew would never have anything else as their God, would they? Not of Jesus' day, of course, they wouldn't have a problem with... You know, they would never struggle with idolatry. You and I would never struggle with worshipping something else other than the one true living God in our hearts. You and I would never do that, would we? We're better than that. Wink. For those listening at home. The Jews, no, no, in their self-righteousness have no dealings with Samaritans. In fact, that literally means they don't want to share stuff. They would not drink from the same jug of water. They would not drink from the same water cooler. And here is Jesus, who not only walks straight into Samaria, but says, hey, can we share a drink? You and I, we're going to share a drink. And she's like, what in the world is happening here, right now? She's a bit disorientated. You can understand that. She's come out in the middle of the day to not be near anyone, for reasons we'll soon find out. And then here's this guy who's like, she meets, sort of sees in the distance and says, it's, goodness me, it's a Jew. What in the world? You're lost. And then he wants a drink with me? What is going on here? She's stunned. But of course, we know, John 4 verse 4, Jesus had to be there. He had to be there that day. He had to be there to meet her. And so Jesus answers her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God... If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he'd give you living water. And the Samaritan was a bit puzzled and recognising that she's talking to a Jew here, well, she brings in big guns. All right, you want to talk about living water, Mr. Jew? Here I am, Miss Samaritan. You want to talk about living water? Here it is. This well is deep, she says. You reckon you've got living water? And she might be confused thinking he means fresh water, like running water, maybe. But then she goes deeper. Do you think you're better than our ancient ancestor who dug this well? And by the way, what was his name? Who's the name of the person who dug the well? Jacob. Oh, by the way, what was he renamed as? Ah, oh, Israel. Oh, the Samaritans are claiming Israel. This is Israel and this is true Israel, true well of ours. And you think you're like greater than Jacob, Israel? She's brought in the big guns. And Jesus says in verse 13, well, here's what I'm trying to talk about. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give that person will never be thirsty again. The water that I give that person will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now the Samaritan woman is just like confused because she wants this living water. She thirsts for water that never runs out, but she thinks Jesus is still referring to fresh water and perhaps running water. And it's kind of like for her, is this kind of like a boating, camping and fishing ad? 
You know, like, now that's living water. Is that what Jesus has an offer here? At that point, the Samaritan woman is taking Jesus literally, just like Nicodemus did. She's of low standing. She is of the unlovelies. Nicodemus was of high standing. He was the teacher. But he took Jesus literally. What, born again? Are you talking about going back into the womb? Because he didn't understand it was a spiritual thing Jesus is talking about, a spiritual reality. Same here. It's a spiritual reality. All she can see is this. I didn't want to come here, but I need water. It's the middle of the day. She thirsts for more in life, and Jesus knows this. And that's where Jesus gets personal, because this is not about good quality H2O. This is about the God that she can really know. And Jesus turns the conversation to speak about worship that satisfies a longing heart. Your longing heart, my longing heart. Verse 16, Jesus now starts opening, scratching beneath the surface into the heart issues of her life. This is when he says, why don't you go and call your husband? We'll talk together. It's starting to get really personal now. And she might be feeling a little bit embarrassed. A bit nervous about where this is going. She's had to explain this before, perhaps to people. It's why she's there in the middle of the day. Jesus perhaps has stumbled into something that she doesn't want to go to. It's an awkward moment, a moment where she is perhaps reflecting on her own life's thirst. And she says, verse 17, almost to deflect, to defer, kind of a defeater belief, I have no husband. Let's leave it there. Jesus says, you're right. You've had five. And the one you're with is not your husband. She's tried to shut the conversation down. You know, let's not talk about my heart and my life right now. She's tried to shut it down. And he says, I know all about you. And the one you're with now is not your husband. That you, you made no public promises in that sense. I, I know him. I know you. I actually know your real need. And she's stunned. What did he just say? So then she responds. You can imagine almost, it seems like a stammering. By changing the subject. Let's change the subject, okay? We, we got a bit personal here, okay? Um, we're, we're talking about my heart. Let's change the subject. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Let's talk about that. Look, everybody knows we can talk about religion, right? Let's, let's at least talk about religion over the, the dinner table or drinking a cup of water because that can't be controversial as we're talking about my life. So let's talk about that. She says, verse 19, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Seem to know about me. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Now, charism. Uh, but you say that in Jerusalem, that's the place where people ought to worship. So what's going on? She starts talking about things of the heart and worship. Let's talk about worship. Samaritans claim their form of religion is the real one. If you Wikipedia this right today, you Google this, you can go and find out. To this day, in fact, I saw a documentary on Samaritans recently. It was on just 
public TV, commercial TV. It was interesting because they're actually their population's quite small, but they still worship on Mount Gerizim. They hold the Pentateuch, but it's a slightly different kind of way of reading it and version. Um, they believe that they are God's people and Jews just haven't quite got it right over there. So Mr. Jew, Mr. Prophet, who seems to know all about me, what do you think real worship is? Jesus says to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And if you want to unpack that statement, keep listening to Reforming Sermons and you'll see some biblical theology outlaid. But he says, verse 23, But the hour is coming. And now is here, when true worshippers worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Jesus is talking about spiritual realities of living water. Friends, the spiritual reality of living water is more important than just H2O. As much as you need that for your body to function. Bear Grylls has taught us this, hasn't he? We teach our children this. Bear Grylls taught our children this. A human body, a human being, can last. Do you know this rule? It's the rule of three. A human being can last. How long without water? I think it's three days. A human being can last three weeks without food. A human being can last, they say, and this is kind of an add-on, three months without other humans, fellowship, society. Yet you'll need water to live. But Jesus is talking about, I'm talking about water that you will not live for eternal life without. It's a spiritual reality that is greater and you need this. Jesus, speaking about worship now, clears up the mess of 2 Kings 17. He clears up the confusion between the Samaritans and the Jews. He says, dear friend, it's not about where you worship. It's about the person you worship. The woman says to him, verse 25, I know when the Messiah comes, the one called Christ, Messiah is the Old Testament word for the New Testament word, which is Christ, which means anointed one. They both mean anointed one, the king. I know when that king comes, he will tell us all these things. And Jesus cuts to the chase, verse 26. I who speak to you am he. You're looking at him. When Jesus says that, he uses a profound way of speaking about himself. He picks up the language of the burning bush, where God speaks to Moses in a burning bush, and God says from that bush, I am. Jesus says to this woman, I am. Jesus is the Christ of God. He's the great I am. The one who spoke to Moses, the ultimate Israelite, you could say in many ways. The one who spoke to Moses, the ultimate Israelite, now speaks to the lowly Samaritan woman beside a well. One from a burning bush, one from a burning thirst. And Jesus has initiated this whole meeting. 
She had to be coming drawing water that day and meet this guy. She had to come and have her heart exposed and open and be talking about a life that is so messed up. She had to meet him. He had to unravel things. He had to bring us all up. Why am I talking about this now? Why am I doing business with him, with God now? Why are you here now? Meeting him at his word. And here is Jesus. And he knows her search history. He knows her heart history. And he comes to meet her personally. Just at this moment, the disciples come back. They've been getting food in the city. And the disciples climb in the Gospels right up until the end. are a hapless bunch. They're also like us in many ways. They're almost like keystone cops bumping into each other and not really knowing what's going on. And so they say, oh, oh he's, he's talking with a woman. Oh, that's interesting. We see this in verse 27. Just then the disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? No one seems to care about the way Jesus cares about the way this woman is. And Jesus breaks down cultural barriers that we often put up, doesn't he? He does this all the time. We say, oh, I wouldn't hang out with that person. They've done something. I'm writing them off in my life because they did some little thing. And Jesus says, what thing? And walks straight through it. And says, how can I love you today? What thing? Well, the disciples start urging Jesus to get some food into him. And he says, I love, it's just spiritual reality tops what they think is reality. And he says, I have no food to eat. I have food to eat, sorry, he says. I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples say to one another, Hey, did someone bring him some food earlier? Has he had some fast food or something that we're not aware of? And just like the Samaritans who worship what they do not know, the disciples do not know the spiritual food Jesus is speaking about. And Jesus said to them, My food is to the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. You say four months and it's harvest time. Look, the harvest is ripe, Jesus is saying. You just saw a woman who is in need and you walk straight past her to talk about food. Jesus speaks about the Lord's harvest because the world is full of worshippers. It's just that we worship the wrong things. We worship what we do not know. Or we think we know. I, I know if I get that thing in life, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have joy. I get that career path. I get that status. I get that reputation. I get that stuff. I get that bit of comfort, that bit of pleasure, that relationship. Once I have that, then I will be happy, won't I? Friends, we worship what we do not know. We worship things that we do not know. We, they will not give us joy, nor ultimate joy. At this point, we see the Samaritans are coming out of town and they believe the woman's testimony, but in the end, they believe because they meet Jesus personally. They meet God literally in the flesh. They believe not even just on that, but notice what it says. Verse 42. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves. 
And we know that this indeed is the saviour of the world. Jesus is the rescuer of all those who would meet him at his word and believe. We said this earlier in our service. What is the pinnacle of worship? The pinnacle of worship is not finding a pinnacle and worshipping upon it. The pinnacle of worship is not a feeling or all your needs and requirements being met in a church service, whatever that means for you. The pinnacle of worship is for you to hear God's word and respond by faith. That is the pinnacle of worship. It's what we were created for in the garden. It's what the fall is all about. We don't trust God at his word. We don't believe him at his word and so we disobey and sin and that's the rest of the world's mess. That's our mess. The pinnacle of worship is to hear his word read, proclaimed, preached and believe it, friends. To believe in Christ. To believe upon him with your life. And then you'll never be thirsty again. Now, you've got to ask, I'm sure you're asking it, but what does that mean? Like, never be thirsty again. It's the spiritual thirst of your heart that often we Aussies don't particularly think about. We in the West, we think we've got a sword. We're smart, we're so clever, and yet we never properly self-reflect on our own hearts. We're so busy, we don't give that time. We don't give time to... Hearing God's word read, we don't read it ourselves to kind of go, actually, what is God saying to my heart? Not just learning interesting things that I can use in a debate later, but what is he saying to me in my heart? How am I being changed? If you read the Bible and think I just learn stuff, case closed, you missed the point. Jesus doesn't come to teach the Samaritan some few things about worship. He comes to get into her heart and change her worship. It comes to get into my heart and change my worship. And he does that, friends, by grace. How? How does he change things? Verse 10. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, he says to you, and this is interesting words, if you knew the gift of God... Not if you know the law of God, not if you know the rules of God, not if you know the legalism of ways you can kind of leg it to God. No, no, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the grace of God, that he would come to you, that he would had to come to you today, that you had to hear him today, if you knew the grace of God. Jesus says, look, in the context of John's gospel, And the most famous verse of all the world, John 3.16, friends, what is the gift of God? It's him. It's God's son. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gifted his only son. We've already seen that in our series in John's Gospel. If only she knew who was speaking to her. If only we recognised who is speaking to us right now. It's not me. I'm, I'm just a channel. I'm just, forget about me. No, no, no more of these pre- pe- pictures of preachers on the internet. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's, let's, let's hear Jesus. This is Jesus' word. He's speaking to you now as his word is preached. Do you see 
And notice how Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman. Notice how he's speaking to you now. He doesn't get stuck into her about her sins. He doesn't bring up her unwise moves. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I've lost respect for you. He doesn't, he doesn't say, no, I'm going to cold shoulder you for a while. He doesn't bring up her mistakes and dredge them up from the mud of the past and say, deal with that. We do, but he doesn't. Jesus wants to get to her heart and help her heart. He wants to give her what she really longs for. Perhaps for her with five husbands and the one, perhaps for her, she really wants that relationship that satisfies. But there's so much more than the relationship that she craves. There is a relationship with God. Christ does not condone her sin for sure, but he doesn't come to condemn her. He comes to be condemned on the cross himself. So that she, that we, could get the gift of God, the grace of God on offer. It's a gift, it's a grace. You can't earn it, you can't pay it back. All you can do is receive it with the empty hands of faith and say, thank you. And hold on to it with belief for the rest of your life. Jesus comes to give living water. How does he do that? He gives himself. Here is God in flesh who is flesh, but he's also the living water who comes to die. Jesus goes to the cross. He had to go to Samaria to offer living water. And then, we'll see in John's Gospel, he has to go to the cross to shoulder our sin and shame and bear our blame. The living water dies in the place of the thirsty ones and rises again to give eternal life to those who believe in him. When you see Jesus and who he is, the Christ, you've met someone who is someone worthy of your worship. He is worthy of someone to live for. You can actually live for Jesus and he will not disappoint you. You will not leave Jesus, worshipping Jesus, being dissatisfied. If you focus on him, he will satisfy you. Reforming church, just for a moment, think on this. There are many in our world who are like the Samaritan woman. We have no problem with Samaria. What do we care? You might want to visit there on holidays now that the world's opening up, etc. and so forth. No, we've got no problem with Samaria. We just don't like hanging out with those people from that suburb of Bendigo. And you know what? They know this. They can smell that out. That's why they don't like hanging out the places that we hang out in the middle of the day. We often expect others to be welcoming us, don't we? But there are those and there are many who sense that we look at them from on high. That we look down on them. From our hearts. And Jesus shows us, He models to us, oh no, 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 we have to go to them. They have to meet Him via your testimony, share your story, 
like the woman's story that she shared in town, they need to meet him personally at his word. It's for their eternal life, for their life of worship. Now, how could you start such a thing? It seems overwhelming, doesn't it? I think evangelism scares Christians the most. Like we hear about persecution and sometimes we kind of arm up inside. Yeah, I think I could deal with that. But you ask Christians in Australia to evangelize and I think it just rattles us to our core. But it's not that scary if you're just asking someone, hey, do you want to share a drink? Would you like to have a coffee? It's pretty simple. It's amazing how the Bible's so equipping, isn't it? And you could have a coffee with someone and say, why not look into Jesus? Oh, I've got a Bible here, I've got, I happen to have one, we can read it together. Friends, we could be mistaken for thinking that this message is for people over there only, though, couldn't we? It's actually for us, it's for me. Augustine wrote in his Confessions, we have made, You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. For us who'd rather hide under our mask of a messy life, curating our life on our socials, pretending in our circles we've all got it sorted when we don't, we worship the wrong things. Now is the time. Now is the day. We had to meet Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for Jesus. As we come to sing and then share in the Lord's Supper together, we sing, Come now, fount of every blessing. We pray, tune my heart to sing of your grace. We thank you for streams of mercy never ceasing. And now we say to one another, let's call for songs of loudest praise. Praise Jesus. Thank you that he came to meet us today. Thank you we have eternal life, living water, by faith in him. And so we pray with thankfulness in Jesus' name. Amen.